Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I am not Lane Harrison. I am uh, filling in for Dr. Harrison as he is on sabbatical. My name is John Mark Yates. I am the uh, VP of Student Services at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, one of the six seminaries that you as a church support as we train men and women for gospel ministry literally around the globe. And we are so thankful for you and for your generosity, as well as for your ongoing prayer support for us as professors, but also as uh, you continue to pray for us as we seek to train the best and the brightest to serve the church globally. So we appreciate that. We started last week a series called Letters from Exile. So if you weren't here, we are in the book of Ezekiel. This is an unusual book that oftentimes we kind of glide past because there's some very difficult and challenging passages inside of this text. And we talked a little bit about that last week where we looked at Ezekiel 1 where Ezekiel comes face-to-face with the throne room of God. And there in that passage, Ezekiel is blown away by the majesty and splendor of God. The chapter ends with Ezekiel flat on his face in worship of the Almighty. For many of us, that idea of worship or who we worship becomes a key defining moment in our life where we have to come face to face with the claims of the gospel. Who will you worship? What will you worship? And we have to ask ourselves that question, who am I going to follow? Who is going to be my savior? Today in the text that we're going to study, God is going to take Ezekiel on a trip. And he is going to go back from his place of exile. He's there away from where the people of Israel are from, from Israel. And he's going to take Ezekiel back to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. And he's going to show Ezekiel some things that are going on with the people of God. And I think what we're going to see are four different vignettes that have deep ramifications even for us today. So if you have your Bible, if you would open up to Ezekiel chapter 8. The idea of bowing down in worship is something really in the West as Americans or those who are uh, uh, of Western descent, we don't really think about very much. It's, it's something we might see like on National Geographic Channel where it's Ramadan and they're playing some sort of special and you've got all of these uh, people who worship Allah and they're in Mecca and there's the Kaaba, this big black cube that's there in uh, Mecca and millions, literally millions of people will make a pilgrimage and they'll, they'll come and encircle that particular uh, religious artifact and they will then turn and bow and worship. If you have friends who are Muslims and they are practicing, they, they bow in private at least five times a day towards Mecca, towards that location, worshiping Allah. Maybe you've seen pictures or you've gone on a mission trip to Southeast Asia and you've seen people worship Hindu gods in, in India 
Or you've seen them bow down before a statue of Buddha, worshiping their God. We go, well, we're Americans. We don't bow down to anyone. We don't bow down to anything. We don't have a problem as American Christians with idols. We just don't. We just worship God, and it's not that big of a deal. Well, as Ezekiel is looking at this situation, as his people have been taken from their lands, the pressure is on to bow down and worship the gods of their age and the gods of that space. Again, think of his, uh, the people who were taken with him like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You know those stories from Sunday school. What were they all pressured to do? To bow down and to worship. They stood strong and worshiped God alone. So we find Ezekiel with these same pressures around him in exile and the question comes, who will you ultimately worship? Who will you bow down to? So we find ourselves in Ezekiel chapter eight. So if you have your copy of God's word in electronic form or print, if you join with me there, and we're gonna work ourselves through this text starting in verse one. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So what's happening is picture small group, right? They're, they're there together. They're doing uh, a study probably of God's word. And while he is there, he says God's hand reaches out and touches him. Look at verse two. Then I looked and behold a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness like gleaming metal. Sound familiar? This was last week in chapter one. This is exactly what we saw. This is the pre-incarnate Christ coming here. He's appearing to him yet again. Verse three, he put out the form of a hand. And again, remember this phrasing, the form of, it's not an actual hand. It's something that looks like it's, it, it, it's there because uh, God has no physicality in that way. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So he's there and uh, this hand reaches out, grabs him by the hair, comfortable, and uh, pulls him up uh, into this vision that he has of the city of Jerusalem. Now he gets very specific. He says, he took me to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was a seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley." Ezekiel, in this vision, is taken to the city of Jerusalem, to a place that he knew well. He was the son of a priest, so he had worked and played inside all of those aspects that were free to him in the temple. Ezekiel is able to now, by this vision of God, see the city of Jerusalem again. To his horror, as he is approaching the city of Jerusalem, at one of its entrances, there is now something set up that is an idol. Something that he says provokes to jealousy. 
Now, the text is not specific about what this is. It doesn't tell us. We just know it's something idolatrous that violates God's law. How do we know this? Well, it's called an idol of jealousy. Look at verse 5. He said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. Maybe at some point in your life you learn the Ten Commandments, right? The, the things that we're, the, at least these minimum, God's top ten, so to speak. Listen to Exodus 20, where those are found, starting in verse 1. God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ten Commandment number one, you shall have no other God before me, right? You shall may not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. So nothing that looks like anything on earth you were supposed to set up. Why? This is in verse 5 of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Word of God tells us that God is a jealous God meaning he will broker no rivals in our lives. So when it says this image of jealousy, what is he referring to? It's something that is made either in the form of a foreign god or an animal or a creature or something, and people are worshiping it. That's what it's referring to. So we don't know exactly what it is, but this wasn't unheard of. In fact, for the Assyrians or Babylonians, as they swept through Israel, if you kind of know your history there, we're at about 600 years before the time of Christ. It was not uncommon for them to take one of their gods or symbols of their gods and set it in the place of worship of that country that they conquered. It was their way of saying, we win and you're not going to forget it, right? It was their way of putting it in your face on a regular basis. Now, for the people of Israel, the expectation would have been, we'll have none of that, we serve God alone, and they would have, should have, pulled that statue down. And if they re-erected it, pull it down again. They were to stand up against such idolatry every single place that it was to be found. Yet here Ezekiel is there at the north of the altar gate in the entrance of the temple mount itself. And here is this image. Look at verse 6. He said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. What is implicated here is that not only is this statue, this idol here at the entrance of the temple, but the people of God are actually worshiping it. It's not that they've just kind of let it be. They've actually accepted it and are now worshiping at the foot of that idol. Maybe to kind of put it in context for us today, 
It would be like if you had walked in the doors this morning and in the foyer during the week that the church had bought a 20-foot statue of Buddha and he expected you to kind of walk in and put your money at the feet of Buddha and bow down and worship there. I think gut level wise, we would all go, what is going on, right? This is wrong. This is not right. That's a false God. This isn't God Almighty, Jehovah. This is a different God. Yet the people of Israel had gotten so far away from God that they were willing to engage in a visible idolatry. The people weren't even hiding this. They were there in front of others and bowing down in front of this idol. Now what happens in this text, and if you're taking notes, I, I want you to kind of catch this. We're going to see four different vignettes of people who are worshiping different types of idols. This is the first of four, a very visible idolatry. Again, we don't know the specifics of what they were worshiping, but it was definitely something, and it was something that violated God's word and it violated God's command. And yet the people willingly and visibly were worshiping. And it was at the entrance to the temple of God himself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Ezekiel's reaction? The grief, the frustration he must have felt the result that God says, look, my people are doing this in a way to try to drive me from my sanctuary, to try to push me out of their life. Maybe we should stop for a second and clarify for ourselves what is an idol. Because see, there are things in our life I would be willing to bet that are idols as well. See, John Calvin, the great theologian of the 16th century, said this about idols, that our hearts are basically factories for idols. We can't help but produce idols in our life. We just perpetually prepare them. So, so what is an idol? I think Tim Keller, the pastor from New York, says this so well and defines it for us this way. So pay attention if we're thinking about idols and we've got this visible idolatry for us today since we're not talking about worshiping stone or statue what could we think about an idol he defines it this way anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God anything you seek to give you what only God can is an idol this is an incredibly poignant definition. What in your life then meets this criterion? For some of you, maybe as a single adult, the pursuit or the idea of a relationship is that idol in your life. It consumes you. Maybe the pursuit of your Sexuality, as our culture is trying to redefine these things, that is your idol. Maybe your job is your idol. Maybe it's even a good thing that God has given us, like sports. 
but we have perverted it and we have made it to where it is much more than just an enjoyment of physical activity. It is actually something that I am now bowing down at the altar of. What is the idol that is perhaps in your life? A visible idolatry. Now, here's the thing. In this first vignette, this is a visible idolatry. This would be something in your life that if you were to kind of elbow your spouse and say, hey, is there something in my life that you think probably meets this criteria or gets very close to, that they would go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, it's this. I bet as parents, we could do that for all of our kids. I bet our older kids might be able to do that for us in our own life. Maybe other people in your small group would be able to point out these things to you. There are things maybe that we flirt about, but at the end of the day, if I were to kind of do a balancing act of what consumes my affections more than anything else, it's that thing. And do I worship it more than God? Dear brother and sister in Christ, we must be exceptionally careful about these visible idolatries that can creep up in our lives And they will. And they will be different at different seasons in your life. But friends, it doesn't stop. Your heart will continue to produce these because the evil one is always seeking to distract you from your Savior. What is that thing? Now, I want you to notice an interesting phrase at the end of verse 6. But you, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, you will see still greater abominations. Have you ever watched late night TV, right? Maybe you can't sleep and you're watching and it's that infomercial that comes on and it's, it's like they're telling you all the great things about how their kitchen knife can cut through concrete, uh, all these other kinds of things, right? And then they're trying to demonstrate that and then they go, but wait, there's more. And they're like, if you order now, you get free shipping. But wait, there's more. If you order in the next five minutes, not only get free shipping, you get like 15 of these things to give to your friends and family, you know, all that kind of stuff. But wait, there's more. This text, as it moves through, plays this out. But wait, there's more. Except instead of it being a positive thing, It just gets worse. Put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. God, we're 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 here at the temple. This is horrible. They're worshiping this other thing, and you're saying it's it's gonna get worse? How? How on earth could it get worse? Look at the text starting in verse seven. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations they are committed here. So I went in and I saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. God tells, takes Ezekiel to this other part of the Temple Mount and, and he says, look, go through this hole in the wall and, and when you do, you're actually going to enter into the sanctuary. 
This was the part that only the priests were supposed to enter. This is the place that had the Holy of Holies and the, and the curtain that was erected to keep this very symbolic and, a place of where God himself was supposed to dwell. But after the destruction of Jerusalem and the raiding that was there, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was gone. All of the objects were, were gone. And so here was this temple of God that had been left empty. And the people of God started filling it but not with the things of God. Did you catch what they had put on the walls? Every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Engraving on all walls the very temple of God himself were all the things that God in Exodus 20 had told them not to do. They were there. They had erected them inside the temple itself. Verse 11. Before them, all these idols, stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. You can imagine Ezekiel seeing the inside of the temple decorated in this way that was an absolute abhorrence to God and wanting to wretch. But then he turns and he looks around and here are 70 of the key leaders of Israel and they are worshiping these things, these false gods, not the true God. They're worshiping all this stuff. They each have a scepter in their hand and these offerings to these false gods go up. These were the respectable leaders. That Notice it identifies them as the elders of the house of Israel. These are the people that, that, that everyone looked up to who said, you're supposed to be leading us in the worship of God. And instead, they are there in a hidden idolatry where everyone else can't see. They are doing it themselves in this place where nobody else could see and understand exactly the horrors of what were going on in there. See, we've moved now from a public idolatry to a hidden idolatry, an idolatry that no one else can see. In this private place, they are lifting up sacrifices and worship to these false gods. Look at verse 12. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Here's their rationale. I don't sense God anymore. He's not here. What difference does it make? If God's not here and I don't feel God or sense his presence or, or think that he's here anymore, what difference does it make? Why not just go ahead and worship all these gods? This is the attitude of these who once were those who were supposed to be upholding the law of God, upholding the worship of God. And instead, they have now made it about these other gods, their hidden idolatry. I want us to note, especially for our own day and time, and I don't want you to miss this phrase, Son of man, have you, this is verse 12 again, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? 
Never before has there ever been a method and a time whereby you and I, in the perceived privacy of our own space, been able to hold in our hands a moving house of pictures. And whether it's pornography or TikTok or reels or whatever you're watching, we consume worship to something else besides our God. Dear brother and sister in Christ, I would be willing, just based on understanding what's happening in our brighter culture, I would be willing to wager there are many of you who are trapped in a cycle of idolatry to your own lust through pornography. And if not day by day, then at least week by week, you have convinced yourself that God is not here, that Jesus is not enough, that God and his glory is not enough. And consequently, you worship in the dark with your room of pictures. We do the same thing perhaps by watching those little vignettes, the reels, and we we covet and we seek after the wealth of others or the affluence of others and we allow this to become the idol of our age and we willingly go along because nobody sees and nobody knows perhaps not even people in our family know and we worship at the altar in private is that you Have you felt that God was so far away that you've lied to yourself about God and his promises? See, he loves you. We're promised by by Jesus, brother and sister in Christ, we're promised with Jesus that his spirit is with us always. He is with us. So even as you are worshiping that false God in private, he is still with you. He sees you. When I was a teenager before going out to have fun with friends, my mom would remind me, she would say, remember, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you remember that God sees everything you do. Thanks, mom. Uh, that's, that's not what you want to hear. Friend, it's true. See, there's a positive to that, that God sees us. Friend, he sees you. That means he sees your grief. And he sees your struggle. And he sees what you're going through. He knows. He sees you. But friends, it cuts two ways. He also sees you. And what you think you're doing in the dark by yourself. He sees you. And he's with you. Dear brother, if you're trapped and a cycle of porn addiction. Let Jesus break that cycle. Dear sister, if you're trapped in a cycle of porn addiction, let Jesus free you. Friends, this idea of being caught in a hidden idolatry is is not okay. It's an abomination to God himself. But here's the thing, Jesus brings life. Jesus brings freedom. 
today, this is something that you struggle with at the close of the service. Let's, let's break this idol. Let's start ending this addiction now. Let's, let's set freedom in place. You can, you can meet with your elders. Let's start praying about this. Let's start moving through this. Let's break this now. Verse 13, he said also to me, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. Ezekiel by now just has to be throwing his hands in the air going, what could be worse? They're worshiping false gods in the temple of God himself. What on earth could be worse? Verse 14, he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. That north gate of the house of the Lord, that was the, the gate that kind of went to the affluent neighborhood just to the north of the Temple Mount. That's where all of the wealthy people would have been. That's where all of the people in Jerusalem who had connection kind of to the temple, that's where they all would have gone through. And now we see that there is an, a, a false god, uh, an idol that has been erected right there at that north gate for the god to move. We have pretty good evidence of the god Tammuz. He was worshipped all the way up to about 600 years ago in the Middle East. Tammuz was a god, a shepherd god of uh, agriculture. And so the idea was that you would worship Tammuz and you would have good crops and you would have plenty of food. The way that you worship Tammuz was with emotional outbursts. You would come to the altar of Tammuz and you would bring your tears and you would cry out and you would weep the more emotive you were, the more that you could manipulate Tammuz to secure what you wanted. What we're seeing happen is going from a public display of idolatry to that private display of idolatry to now this idolatry that grips our emotions and our hearts. God is pointing out to Ezekiel that the people of God have moved from just that secret idolatry to a flat out emotional attachment. They have stopped rationalizing their idolatry and instead full on embraced it. They're now saying, ah, it's just who I am. It's, it's what my heart wants and the heart wants what the heart wants. It completes me. It's who I am. They have followed their heart right out of the teachings of God into the ecstasy of self and emotional worship. Dear friends, is this you? In your emotional attachments, are those what drive your decision making and not the word of God? In your search for emotional fulfillment, does that lead everywhere except to God? Except to the word of God? Have you sought out the fulfillment of your own heart and self anywhere else but God? Friends, that's idolatry. But look at verse 15. Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. You can imagine Ezekiel going, I give up. What's left? What's left? What? God, this is, this is horrible. The, the people of Israel are so consumed with, with, with self and, and with their own understanding. And, 
Verse 16, what happens? He brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. This is the, the, the courtyard just outside of the temple. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces to the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. In the ancient cultures, people would have read that and it would have horrified them. See, that altar may have been placed here and the doorway to the holy place was right over here. Your back was never to be to the holiest place. How, how dare God see the most ignoble of our beings so that when you bow down and worship that your rear end was placed in a position towards the holiest place. And now here are 25 men bowing down in worship with their butts in the air towards the holiest place of God, worshiping the sun in an Egyptian practice. We've now moved from a visible idolatry to a hidden idolatry to an emotional idolatry to flat out defiance against the Almighty. A defiant idolatry where there's not even a sense that, that God is still there or that God is, is caring for what's going on. Instead, it's a flat out affront to everything that God asks of the people. How do, how do we even see this even more clearly in the text? Look at verse 17. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? That they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. That's a turn of phrase that simply means that they are so defiant against God that it's like they're thumbing their nose at God or giving him the middle finger and saying, I don't need you anymore. What I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that this is even a progression that we see in the lives of people who begin to walk away from God, that they have these visible idolatries. But what's usually going on is there's some deep-seated secret idolatries that becomes emotionally attached in their life. And eventually they get to a place where they just say, no more, I'll have no more of God. And they walk away. They deconvert. They do whatever it is that the culture is asking them to do because that is their true God, not Jesus. But is that you? See, there's, there's a result here. Verse 18, therefore, God says, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. The result, quite simply, is judgment. God is still sovereign. Whatever you choose to declare or not declare, it doesn't change the reality that God is still king and he will not be mocked. And the day of his judgment, which, friend, is coming, it will be too late to repent and he will not hear. Do not delay in your repentance. Brother and sister, don't delay in your repentance. Get your life right with Jesus. What am I supposed to do with this? What if I find myself here in one of these vignettes? That even as we've been exploring this text together, I can feel the 
power of the Holy Spirit on my life. I can feel the weight and I know what's at stake and I know what I need to do. What am I supposed to take action on, friends? The first thing that we can do is just simply run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that our guilt can be washed away. Friend, if you walked into this room today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm telling you, there's a day of judgment coming and the only salvation from that day is to run to Jesus. Only in the blood of Jesus can our guilt be washed away. Listen to God's promise to Ezekiel just a couple of chapters later in Ezekiel 11, starting in verse 19. This was the promise of God through the Messiah that he said this, I will give them a One heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. The promise of salvation in Jesus Christ is that he removes from us our hardened hearts and gives us a heart sensitive to him. And he draws us close to himself. And that promise still stands, even if at some time you trusted Christ and you've walked away for years. Friends, that promise is still there. Come back to Jesus. The second thing that we need to do besides running to Jesus is we need to destroy our idols. We need to be an idol smasher. Listen to Paul's challenge to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Does this sound familiar to this passage here? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We need to be those who are perpetually seeking out the idols in our heart and destroying them by the blood of Jesus Christ, destroying them one after the other. But dear friends, we also are told in the word of God that this is not an act of individual work. It is that of the community. So our third thing we need to recognize, we cannot do this alone. This is why God created the church. We are not designed to walk through this by ourselves. Friends, I'm broken. You're broken. We're helpless idolaters. But in Christ, we can encourage one another to press on to the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ and together seek the Lord. Can you imagine what might have happened if Together, the people of Israel had, had, had looked at that visible idolatry and said, hey, I don't think that's right. And hey, brother, I don't, I don't think that's right. And had just even pointed out and walked together in destroying that. What if we could help each other get free? See, that's what happens if we'll submit to the Savior first and then walk together with one another to pursue Jesus Christ. Where are you? Brother and sister in Christ, don't leave today with an idol in your heart left unaddressed. Let's put 
our idols to death. Let's smash them here at the altar at the foot of the cross. And let's pursue Jesus.